Okay, we are going to be reading in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, starting in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. And as we go through the chronological life of Jesus, uh, uh, we're just at the point where he has, has uh, died on the cross. And while he's still on the cross, there's several of things that occur. We looked at last time how, how the, the skies had become black from 12 noon until 3 p.m., And now let's look in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee... When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, so what he tells us, the first thing is in verse 38, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we know that that tearing of the veil occurred just moments before his death. And we know that because we're going to look in Luke, and Luke is written chronologically, and it has that before his breathing is last. But it says the veil in the temple. So now this veil was a veil that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies. And, and this, this, uh, this veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet high. So, you know, this, this ceiling here is, is I, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, 12 feet in this vaulted part. It's 30 feet high. So it was a very high uh, 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 60 feet long, 30 feet high, and 4 inches wide. And we know that because, because that, it describes the building of the temple. So it was, 30, it was 4 inches thick was this veil. So it wasn't like some sheer little thing. It was 4 inches thick because it says it was a hand breadth thick. And, and, uh, and it was torn in two from top to bottom, which is an indication that it was God who tore this. Had it, been, had it been human beings to tear it, they would have gone to the bottom of it, it's being 30 feet high, and they would have ripped it from the bottom to the top. This specifically says from top to bottom. Then it says when the centurion who was standing right in front of him. So this is a man in charge of a thousand troops. He's part of the crucifixion squad. All right. So he has crucified a lot of people. So they call upon the crucifixion squad to do the crucifixion. And... And uh, uh, he has seen hundreds, if not thousands of people crucified. So he knows what death on a cross looks like. He's used to this. It's not foreign to him. It's like looking at, uh, at, at uh, say, a, a physician or a worker in a hospice, for example. They see death all the time. They know what it looks like. This man knew what crucifixion looks like. He was in charge of a thousand troops, so he was the head guy. He was standing right in front of Jesus, and it says he saw the way he breathed his last, and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. From the way that Jesus died, he knew that this was the Son of God. He died so differently than all the hundreds or thousands of people that he had ever seen die. He knew that this man was different. And that's not the only thing he's going to say. We're going to see other things that he's going to say in in another book. 
but in verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance, and he names three of the women, two Marys and a Salome. And so he names three of the women. There have been studies done. It's fascinating. So if I were to ask you, what, what were common names of people in France a hundred years ago? What would you say? Jacques. You know, what, 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 kind, what kind of names? And so it's hard to know. So if these things had been written hundreds of years later, outside the land, how would you know what the names were that were typical in those days? And Mary was a very typical name. And so was Salome. And they've gone through and they've mapped the names in the Bible. Not just the names, they've mapped the shrubbery, the, 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 the examples of, of things that, that uh, people came in contact with. And so it says that there were many women that followed him. These women had come down from Galilee and they used to minister to Jesus. We know from Luke chapter 8 that, the, that it lists some of the women. So, so you say, well, where were the women? There were all these, there were these 12 apostles. Where were the women? There were a lot of women that also followed Jesus and they did their roles and they were constantly ministering and serving. And it says that there were even wealthy women among them. And it, it mentions one who was the wife of Herod's steward. And so you can imagine that these people are, these women are also supporting the ministry because we know from other, other passages that there was a money box that they used to use and they used to give money to the poor from that money box. But there were many, many women that followed. So he lists three, but he says that there were many of them. If this were made up, if they were making this stuff up, they would not give specific names of specific people and listing this out. And this is what they did. And you will see the women never fled. It was the men, it was the twelve that fled, the twelve that left him in the garden. The women never fled. The only one that came back, of the, uh, there were eleven at that point because Judas was already gone, the eleven fled. But, but um, the, the, the only one that came back to the cross was John. John was the only one who'd come back. And interestingly, John was the only one who did not have to die a martyr's death. He died in banishment on an island, but he did not have to buy, die the, the, the martyr's death. All the other ten died that martyr's death because they were showing that, that indeed that, that they were willing to die for him. But the women never left. They're standing there. And you will often find when families go astray, when families go astray, very often you will find one woman holding on, one grandmother holding on. When I did prison ministry, often I would meet guys and, and, and we'd start talking about the Lord and they talk about their grandmother. Their grandmother was the one who had told them this would happen to them. Their grandmother was the one that was holding on to faith. You will often find a woman holding on when all men have, 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 have left. There will often be a woman that is holding on. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Verse 54 of Matthew 27. Now the centurion... And those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Many women there were looking on from a distance. 
who had followed Jesus from Galilee and while ministering to him. And among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and also and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So you see here in, in Matthew, Matthew talks about the veil that was torn in two from top to bottom, the same veil. But now he says something different. He says, and the earth shook and rocks split. So an earthquake took place after this, this, this uh, uh, veil was rent in two. Jesus breathed his last and an earthquake started to take place. And so much so that you saw rocks splitting. I've been in earthquakes. I used to live in California and I remember earthquakes. I don't remember seeing rocks splitting. I mean, this was a really violent earthquake. It was probably so violent that many of the buildings fell down because, you know, they, they didn't have structural reinforcement then. And uh, uh, w- without, without steel bars in there, you know, rock has a tendency to just slip away from, from, from uh, different pieces. In fact, I used to go to Stanford and they have all these pictures. They have these beautiful buildings. And when that earthquake struck in around 1910 or 1903, whenever it was, just all these buildings just collapsed because there was no structural reinforcement in them. And so, so it, it references this earthquake. Now it says something. It says, The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So in other words, tombs cracked open during this earthquake and some dead bodies came alive. But they didn't come out of the tomb just then. They stayed in the tomb. It, said in verse, it says in verse 53, And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So these were saints who had fallen asleep. Remember, it was people who believed in God, who had faith, the Scriptures referred to them as having fallen asleep. These were specific people. If you drive up to, to Jerusalem today, you will see on the hillsides just one tomb after another. It's just like boxes. Boom, boom. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of these, these boxes where there's a stone slab on top and, 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 and uh, you've got the, these other four sides around and a stone slab on top. There's a slab on the bottom and the body's put in it. There's also, you can go through these salt caves and they would dig into these salt mines and, and they would make these caves and they'd dig holes just one after another and that's where they'd slip the bodies. So there were tombs that the bodies were slipped into. And so some of these came alive. Now there's no other scriptural reference for this. This is the one mention of it. And it says that they, had, they were raised but they didn't come out of the tomb until after the resurrection of Jesus. And they came into the holy city and it says they appeared to many. So again, he's documenting. Go ahead and ask the people of the time. Verse 54, the centurion and those who were keeping guard over Jesus. So before it was just the centurion. Now it's the centurion and the other people with him. The other guards with him. When they saw the earthquake and things, they became very frightened. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. So their commanding officer, a few moments before, seeing the way that Jesus died, said, surely, this is the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. And now the people around him start agreeing he was the Son of God. You know, once they, they, they went through this earthquake. And then he, he references the women again. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 45. Luke, um, um, I'm sorry, chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 45. Luke is the only gospel that is documented, and he says it at the beginning of his gospel that's written chronologically, so we can follow the chronological order of what happened. Luke 23, verse 45. 
because the sun was obscured and the veil in the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So we know that that was his last words. Verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing the things. Okay, so here it tells us that, that, uh, um, that in verse 45, the veil on the temple was torn. And then it says, then Jesus cried out, said these things, breathed his last. So we know that the veil was torn before his death because Luke specifically tells us that this is listed chronologically. And you say, well, why aren't the other Gospels listed chronologically? Because chronological order is important for us in the Western world, but it's not important in many other parts of the world. There's many ways to tell a story. You don't have to tell it chronologically. And, and uh, so then it says, it says in verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. So now here Luke tells us, not only did he say, surely this was the Son of God, he began praising God. I mean, something happened in this man's heart. And he says, certainly this man was innocent. We had seen how multiple times Pontius Pilate had declared Jesus innocent. Herod Antipas had declared Jesus innocent. And now this centurion, seeing all that's happened, the way Jesus died, the things that happened, he declares this man was innocent. Remember, this is a man who had seen hundreds or thousands of people die on the cross. He could tell just by the way he died, this man was innocent. He makes the proclamation. Then he says in verse 48, And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. So there were a lot of people watching this. A lot of people, remember, it says they were mocking him. They were making fun of him. They were saying, if he's, the, if he's God's son, let him come, up, come down from this cross. When they saw what had happened, when they saw the way he died, when they saw the, 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 uh, the earthquake that had taken place, they began beating their breasts. Something happened to them where they realized that they had put to death an innocent man, and not just an innocent man, but one who was the Son of God. This may well have been, indeed, the Messiah. It would be like this, so that we could bring it home. It would be like, you think a burglar is in the home, and you shoot the burglar. Or you take out a baseball bat, and you kill the burglar, and then you find out that it's your father. I mean, how would you feel? How would you... I just, I just killed my father. Or a man, I just killed my son. I mean, think of how you would feel. You'd just be beating your breast. This is how they felt. This is the sense of how they felt. They had just had an innocent man crucified... And the very man who had been a prophet among them, a very man attested to by miracles, and they got caught up in this frenzy that had been stirred up by the Sanhedrin, 
by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they went along saying, no, his blood be upon us. And now they realize whom they have killed. Now they realize whom they have killed. Before I get into that, I want to just read a few points of what this death means, of what this death means theologically, what this means for us, because I, I, I don't want to move on without this. So let me just read to you this, and I'm going to go through, I'm just going to list through a number of verses. This will be posted online if you can't keep up with the verses, but he, here's what it means. First of all, it was a ransom in that it, it paid the penalty for sin. This crucifixion paid the penalty for sin. This is found in Matthew 20, verse 28, and 1 Timothy 2, 6. Secondly, it is a redemption. Redemption means to be purchased from the slave market, and essentially we've been purchased by the, from the slave market of sin by His blood. That's in Galatians 3.12 and 2 Peter 2.1. The third significance is reconciliation. And the point is that, uh, that is made is that the whole world was reconciled back to God, rendering the whole world now favorable through reconciliation that's applied, but it's applied only to individuals in the world who really believe. That tells us, we, we, that's in 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. Fourthly, his death was also of propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the demands of God or to appease the wrath of God. And so that's in, in 1 John 2.2. 2. Fifth, the death of Jesus was also a substitution. That's a key element in the gospel. He died for our sins. In other words, he died in our stead, in our place. His death was a substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 1 Peter 3.18. So the apostles just go in, filling in for us what this means. The sixth significance is that his death was proof of the love of God in Romans 5.8. That while we were yet sinners, he loved us. The seventh significance is that it was judgment of the sin nature. Our old sin nature was judged on the cross. We were co-crucified with him. Romans 6, 1 through 10 tells us that. Eighth, it marked the end of the Mosaic Law. 613 commandments, it's the end. You want to go back under those commandments? Fine. But we have been liberated from that. That is clear. We are under the commandments of Jesus in the New Testament. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, keep my law. And that's in Romans 10.4, Colossians 2.14, Ephesians 2.11-16, Hebrews 7.11-18, Galatians 3.19-4.7, through 4, 2 Corinthians 3.1-11, a lot of portions on how the Old Testament law is done. Ninth, is the basis of the believer's continuous cleansing from sin. Even as believers, we sin. We are continually cleansed based upon his death. That's in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. 10th, it became the basis for the removal of pre-cross sins, meaning that he died for the sins of everyone who ever lived before him as well. That's in Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 9.15. And 11th, it became the basis for the judgment of Satan and his demons. For Satan, John 12.31 is his judgment. And for demons, Colossians 2.15. So these are some of the, the, uh, the theological meanings of what took place the, theologically with his death on the cross. Now going back to this point of beating their breast. These same people that were beating their breasts when they realized that they had killed a good man 
Or you would, you would realize that you just killed your father. Or you just killed your husband. Or you just killed your wife thinking that they were a burglar or something. Think of the devastation. That's how they're now shaken. That's what it means they're beating their breast. These same people are in Jerusalem 50 days later. Every male had to appear, every male Jew had to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. This they had to do. Jesus was always there for the Passover. They had to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Pentecost, Pentecost means 50 days after the Passover. That's what Pentecost means. The first Pentecost was not in Jerusalem. The first Pentecost was on the mountain. On the mountain, Moses was, 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 uh, was given the law around that mountain. The people started dancing around a golden idol that Aaron, Moses' brother, had set up. Moses is up on the mountain. God tells Moses there's trouble in the camp. He goes down. He sees this. He smashes these two tablets that had been written by the finger of God. That was the first Pentecost. How many people died on the first Pentecost? So, so Drew said 3,000. You're close. The Bible says about 3,000. The law is very specific. Right? It said about 3,000. So let, let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 was not the first Pentecost. This was many, many years later, Pentecost, but it was common for people to want to get back to Jerusalem for the Pentecost. And we see that in Paul. Paul, it said he was rushing back to Jerusalem to get back in, in time for Pentecost, if possible. It is, it is a big celebration, even to this day. If you are there 50 days after the Passover in Jerusalem, I've been there. And it's a big deal. It's a big holiday for them. It's a big thing going on. So now, this is 50 days after the Passover. This is when the Holy Spirit comes down. And so, it, it, it says that, that they were in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon them. These same people are there because it was not uncommon for Jewish men that lived outside of Jerusalem who were traveling from a long distance, to come to the Passover and stay there for 50 days to wait for the, for the day of Pentecost. You say, didn't they have jobs to do? I mean, come on, they've got to work. I mean, how do, who gets 50 days off? Well, actually, if you go to Europe today, you know, I was, I was in France recently, and it's not at all, she's lived in Europe. I mean, for them to take 50 days off is no problem. I mean, that take the whole summer off. I was talking to, to the, the, uh, the young guy who's, 35 years old, he was my driver in France. And so I was talking to him what he does, and he takes the whole winter months off. Six months, he takes off every year. I said, what do you do for six months? He said, well, take vacations. <laughs> I mean, six months. I mean, so, so, you know, we think that how could people take 50 days? I mean, some people take six months off for vacations. So these people would often, because it was very hard to go away and then come back again from a long distance just for Pentecost, so they would stay there. So this is the same people. So they see the Holy Spirit fall on these people. And, and uh, um, then, then let's look in Acts chapter 2, and we'll start reading from verse 29. Acts chapter 2, verse, or let's start in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene... A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, 
just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is why he says to them, it is you. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Even though you didn't pound the nail yourself, you were the ones who accused him and said, his blood be upon us. And, and uh, uh, you were the ones who then put, pushed him forward on Pilate and had the Romans put him to death only because you were not allowed to put him to death yourself because you had lost that right that very year. They couldn't, there, was, there was no longer public execution allowed by the Sanhedrin. This is why he says, you are the very ones. These are the very ones who had left beating their breast. <clears throat> then he goes down quoting the scriptures again. And then, and then uh, let, let's look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. So he quotes the scriptures. He quotes a lot from Psalm 16, which is the Messianic Psalm. Then he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Imagine, imagine, you kill your father unknowingly and now somebody comes and says, you, you are the one. And now for two months, 50 days, you've been trying to get this out of your mind and now someone comes and points a finger in your face. You are the one. This is why it really hit them. These were the very ones that were beating their breasts. These are the very ones that now Peter is that now Peter is standing up and saying, "You are the ones who nailed them to the cross." This Jesus, whom you crucified, <clears throat> verse verse thirty-seven. Now, when they heard this, heard what? What he had just said. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard that, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren. What shall we do? Imagine if you were to just take the life of somebody you love. You'd be like, what do I do? What do I do now? What have I done? This is the way they feel. Do you get this sense, the way they feel? This is not just a passing little thing. I mean, this boom. When it says they were pierced to the heart, I mean, how, more, how much more profound could you say this? This would be like somebody pointing out to you what you just realized. I just killed my own father. I just killed my own husband. I just killed my own son. He said, what am I going to do? Peter says this, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So this is not all he said. It's, it says, with many other words. So he continued on in the discourse. So then, those who had received his words were baptized. And that day there were added, how many drew? How many? About 3,000. Isn't that interesting? On the first Pentecost, how many people died? 
About 3,000. On this Pentecost, how many people got saved? About 3,000. You see how wonderful God's Word is. The law came through Moses and truth and grace were realized through Jesus Christ. About 3,000 were saved that very day. I'll bet if they kept proper count, it was exactly the same. The Scriptures are so beautiful. God just reached down. In His judgment, He killed about 3,000 on the first Pentecost. When grace came, about 3,000 were saved on this Pentecost. The word is that they said, what have we done? Let me tell you my story. I grew up in a Jewish home and, and uh, I didn't know much about Jesus Christ at all. In fact, I knew very little. I didn't even know that He died for my sins or that there was a claim on the table that He died for my sins. I remember uh, uh, reading some little, little booklets. They called them tracts in those days. They worked in the gas station on the night shift on the highway on a gas station going into and out of New York City. And people sometimes would come and give me little tracts and I'd read little, little things about Jesus. But when I went to college, uh, I, w- I met a young man and uh, uh, we were doing laundry in the laundry room. It was August of my freshman year. And he said he wanted to give me an illustration of the gospel. And I didn't even know what he meant. He said, go ahead. And he told me the story of Jesus Christ. He told me the story of how Jesus had died for my sins. And I remember looking at him. And I said to him, but first he told me, he says, we're all sinners. He had me read a verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I said to him, I'm not a sinner. He said, I really didn't feel like a sinner. In modern secular Judaism, we don't dwell on sin. You know, you go, you go to the synagogue once a year and whatever problems there are, the rabbi takes care of it. You know, when you become a Christian, you think about sin all the time. Like, uh-oh, whenever I look, whatever thought I have, it's just sin. You, you, Jewish life is so much easier. <laughs> it, you, you don't worry about that. So when he said to me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I read that verse, I said, I'm not a sinner. He says, you're not. I said, no, I never robbed a bank. And I never killed anyone. How could I be a sinner? That's what I told him. Then he had me read a verse from the Bible. He says where Jesus said, said that, that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And guess what happened? I was pierced to the heart. The reason I was pierced to the heart is because I had been addicted to pornography, working in that same gas station, cleaning up the, the, the parking lots. The, 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 um, the salesmen would throw away their, their magazines on their way home on Friday nights. And I would take their magazines right out of the trash buckets, and, and, uh, uh, and I had a big stash of magazines from the time I was a young teenager. And I had become addicted to pornography, and I went to college, and I didn't think anybody knew. It was brand new, fresh. Nobody's, nobody knows this. And it was just, boom. These words from this man 2,000 years ago just zeroed right in in my heart. And I looked at him. I said, if that's the definition of sin, I am a sinner. And I carried this. And then he took me through these verses about how Jesus died for my sin and how there's life in Him. And I only partially heard that because I was still thinking about how I was a sinner. When these people 
it came to their realization. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter, what are we going to do? Peter didn't say, okay, if you feel bad about it, you're remorseful, it's okay. No, he didn't stop there. He said, repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't stop with just being remorseful for our sin. Judas was remorseful for his sin, the Bible says. Being remorseful for our sin, acknowledging that we are a sinner, is an important first step. But it is only the first step. Then comes the step where we have to repent. This is repentance. I will demonstrate repentance for you. Repentance means I'm facing this way and I turn this way. That's what repentance means. It means turning 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Repentance means turn. Teshuvah. Teshuvah. That's exactly the word in Hebrew is Teshuvah. You return to God. For the Gentile, it's returning from idol worship to, to God. For the Jew, it's returning from wandering away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the return. It is returning to God. Everyone has to return to God. Everyone has to turn and repent. Acknowledge that we are a sinner. This is the first step. And if you feel you haven't sinned, you are deluded. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God will expose to you your sin. And you will see your sin. And you have to turn from it. And you turn from it, you repent, and you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive the forgiveness of sins. And if you are a believer, and you have not been baptized, you are walking in disobedience. Be baptized. Be baptized. And there's no reference in the Scriptures where children were baptized at birth. There's no reference to it. It says they believed and they were baptized. You believe and you be baptized. If you've not been baptized after believing, be baptized. And it's a simple thing. You can go in this church and in a couple of weeks they'll get you baptized. But until then, you're walking in a state of disobedience because we are told to be baptized. But you first got to be saved. You give your heart to the Lord. And don't keep avoiding this thing. You hear this gospel each week. Don't keep avoiding it. Because we hung Him there on that cross. You hung Him there. I hung Him there by our sins. We hung Him there on the cross. He died for us. We give our hearts to Him. Today, when I pray this prayer at the end, you pray this prayer with me and invite Jesus into your hearts. You confess that you are a sinner. You own your sin. And now you ask Jesus to forgive you. And you ask for the, the, the coming of His blood to wash you clean. This is what it's all about. And then, two months later, November 7th, 1977. Uh, uh, so it was the end of August when I heard, and a little over two months later, November 7th, 1977, I was all alone in my room. And the door was shut, my roommate wasn't there, and I fell on my knees, and I don't know what prompted me to do that. And I asked Jesus to forgive me. I said, God, forgive me because I am a sinner. 
forgive me. And at that moment, this burden of sin that I was carrying where Jesus had exposed me through his words just started to lift from me. Just started to lift. This burden of sin. And then all of a sudden, someone was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes to see who it was. And I was still on my knees and I couldn't see anyone. I couldn't see anyone. But right there in front of me, Jesus was standing and His presence was so overwhelming. I wasn't scared. I wasn't frightened. But it was such a pleasant presence. I just started weeping and I didn't even want to get up off my knees because His presence was so real. This often happens to Jews. They will experience the presence or they will see Him with their eyes on the day that they get saved. I never saw Him, but His presence was real. And a change happened in my heart that day. I felt forgiven. For the first time, I felt forgiven. Really experienced forgiveness. And I really changed. Something happened to me that day, and I didn't tell anyone. And then two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me, lived on my floor, he saw me, he says, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me that day. This is a real thing. If you've never come to a point where you have received Jesus in your heart, do that this day. Don't let it go. You see, if you're wondering, you know, have I ever recently received? Just do that this day. Reconfirm it this day. There is no shame in that. It's not going to be like God's upset with you. He welcomes you. Reconfirm this, this relationship. Repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he goes on, he says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. There is a good chance that if you get saved, your children will follow. And this is the best thing that could happen to them. You get saved and your children will often follow. The best thing that could happen to them. Turn your heart to Jesus this day. And remember, if you don't turn to Jesus, you ought to leave here beating your breast, saying, what have I done in crucifying this man and not coming to him and not repenting? Let's pray. Abba, Abba, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. And thank you, Lord, because you know how to pierce the heart. Lord, I pray that you would come this morning and pierce our hearts and convict us of our sin. Convict us of our sin. And that the believer would say, Father, forgive me. Abba, forgive me. And that you would cause them to walk uprightly in the Holy Spirit. Let them walk in that forgiveness. And to the unbelievers who are here, or to those who are not sure, pray with me this very prayer. Father, forgive me because I am a sinner. Indeed, I am a sinner. Forgive me for my sins. Wash me with the blood of Jesus. Forgive me. And fill my life with the Holy Spirit. Fill me to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And let me walk with you. I believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me.
Amen.